0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Red Road reporting subseries, Waiting for the Salvation. My name is George Fairhurst and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Rob Clark. Hello. Hello. Now, you might be noticing this episode was not released a week ago when it was meant to be, and that is down to the fact we had a wonderful technical error where we recorded a lovely hour-long discussion involving um, discussions on Keir Starmer's leadership, um, perhaps what bedsheets Conor Dockler has, who knows. But then we discovered that the recording had become corrupted, like in many ways some of the politicians we follow on this. Um, I decided to reenact the historic thing that Michael Bates did in the House of Lords, where he offered to resign for being late to a meeting. Um, Unfortunately, my resignation was not accepted and you stuck with me still as the main host. So I will now turn to Rob.
1: Hello. Um, We are again joined by Alistair, who's come back very kindly to talk to us. Uh, And we, of course, are joined by Connor. Uh, Connor go. I forgot his second name for a second, despite <laughs> having known him for several years. Connor Docra. So, thank you very much, both of you, for coming back. It's lovely to have you uh, with us, as ever. It's some very enlightened takes. Sadly, we missed from the from the last re- recording due to the tragic technical glitch, which was no one's fault at all. And George has to remember this because he is actually very upset about it. I'm telling well, him, like, you, you know, you know, it could be possibly me. Who knows?
2: It's, Does it's, that no, mean there was... I need to stop my resigned jet?
1: Yes, it does. Yeah. I'm, I'm very sorry to say that you do, but it was no one's fault, and we're uh, we all rejected George's resignation immediately, except for Connor, who was asleep. So it's true. We'll, we'll, move, <laughs> we'll move straight on to the first question, uh, because I can see uh that George very quickly wants to get away from the fact that this is all his fault. That's um it. It is so. It's it's clear from the recent YouGov poll and the Cervation poll, and from all of the trends that we have seen, that we're in the midst of a of a vaccine bounce. I.e., the Tories are finally getting their act together. So you know, in a way, and the vaccine's coming out, and people are happy about this, so they're more likely to support the government. Um, but are there any other factors in play, or is it just the vaccine bounce? Have people allowed themselves? to kind of ignore the fact that the Tories have been quite inept over the rest of the pandemic because the vaccine's coming out. And we will go to Conor Dockra first, please.
3: I Basically, it seems premature, basically, for me to judge the Tories on anything, because I obviously it would be wrong to say the vaccine doesn't go really, really well, especially when compared to any country on the planet, basically. But I think we're still a bit too early in it to really try and draw any political conclusion from that. I think the public is still going to take some time to recalibrate where they think we're at in in respect to how we're dealing with COVID. Because, you know, sure, the vaccine's going well, but that hasn't really affected uh, infection rates yet. That's certainly not affected death rates yet, because obviously, as we all know, those are staggered a couple of weeks behind, you know, whatever action is taken now, there's still going to be the infection rates, the death rates from a few weeks ago coming through in the actual data. So, really, if anything, you know, obviously the Tories are doing perfectly fine in the polls right now, but I think you could see, you know, any Tory bounce come a bit later on in the polls, and not just now, because, there's st- as I said before, there's still all those deaths coming, there's still, you know, the second wave of vaccinations to be coming, so all these positive stories about vaccinations could be lasting for you know. 12 more months for the Tories, which would be delightful for them, you know, that may or may not be the case, They may speed it up, there may be further vaccine debacles, but, you know, even what vaccine issues have come, you know, like the massive debates with Europe about what they were going to do, they actually somehow turned out rather positively for the government, you know, because everybody basically agreed that Europe was being so unreasonable that they were willing to side with the British government on a European issue, which is not something that the British public have generally done for quite a while now so that signals quite a big leap there so is the toy bounce partly to do with vaccines probably but i would be surprised if this is the totality of it if the tories are going to get a vaccine bounce i think that's going to come much later which is probably bad news for Labour, obviously but i think we haven't seen nearly a turnaround in public perception of corona yet and it would be odd to see a public turnaround in the conception of the Tory party, but not a turnaround in how they think is going.
1: Well, yeah, on, on that, there is a, there is polling to suggest that the, the two are being treated as two separate entities by the public, uh, because on the whole, the government's response to the pandemic is seen as negative, but the vaccination process is seen as overwhelming positive. And with that little interjection there, we'll go to Alistair.
2: We're sort of now in the second stage, um, the sort of hope stage where, um, well, I feel a bit hopeful about the future. And I think many people in the country feel a bit hopeful about the future. You know, the vaccine programme is going, you know, quite and very well. You have to admit, from whatever angle you look at it, it is going well. Or doing, I think uh, almost best in the world, nearly. Well, Israel is obviously very far ahead, but I read a document that said 60% of the people who were vaccinated in the world were either in the UK or in the USA. So we do make up a dominating share of how the world is We're leading the world on that. This is sort of now people's perceptions have moved on to the exit strategy, the rebuild strategy, um, which is perhaps uh, is very much where the, sort of the Labour leadership lacks at the moment. There is no rebuild strategy sort of coming out, uh, whereas the Conservatives seem to be you know, back to normal. That's the sort of, they're trying to get um, the focus back on, you know, by the end of autumn, we might be able to go back to normal as things were before coronavirus ever came around. I mean, I'm not that optimistic. And I think if we see any blunders happen in the next six months, that will irreverably damage them. But what we've been through, I don't think it's going to play on too much now that we've got, sort of got this hopeful wave of the vaccine. With that, you know, we'll probably see things come through like eat out to help out and the reopening of businesses. That's all going to help. Sort of the loosening, people feel more comfortable to sort of go out again and then re-enjoy their freedoms and I think all of that is going to make things very very tough to make any ground in the polls for Labour. I'm going to give the government um, a very good showing. Great
1: wow you are you know you've been very nice to the government there so I didn't expect that but there we go. Um, if I may uh-huh. ask do we think, because kind of said it, it's not all about the vaccine bounce? Do we think that the European Union sort of aggressively, not 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 as so much shooting themselves in the foot, but sort of repeatedly launching missiles at their own feet over the course of a a, a couple of weeks? where very high-profile members, both in the European Union itself, from uh, von der Leyen, uh, but of course. Important members of, the, of government from across Europe, the German finance minister, for example, saying that Germany's vaccine situation was to quote "shit," uh, but that you know Britain's you know still slagging Britain off. Of course, Emmanuel Macron, who is is now not only talking down the United Kingdom, he's also going against World Health Organization advice. Do we think that that has antagonised this poll bounce? And the Tories have almost been vindicated in their anti-European stance. And we'll start with Alistair this time.
2: I'm sort of giving you a tacit nod there. You know, I am, um, I, I in the referendum, I would have voted Remain on the basis that I don't trust the European enough not to go off the rails without us. I think, you know, the European Union is one of huge ideals and huge ideologies, you know, they're very ambitious. And so it does need that sort of moderate scepticism, which I thought the UK always brought to the table quite well. I mean, we, let's look at Northern Ireland. I think their vaccination rate is about 20% of the population is vaccinated. Look at the Republic, it's about 2.4. You know, the, there's a sort of European common vaccine buying programme has left smaller population countries for dust and favoured the sort of Germany who can afford to go uh, on their own and, you know, take it in their stride. You know, um, I think on the whole, the European Union approach has been very, very tough. I think Emmanuel Macron's slump in the poll sort of shows that people aren't really trusting European Union on this issue, perhaps because there's not such a common um, deployment, but there is common buying. And that's perhaps where the uh, failure comes. Supply doesn't meet deployment, whereas in the UK, we very much have a huge supply. And deployment is devolved perhaps why scotland's going to be having vaccine troubles over the next few weeks our deployment's going to go down but the uk has an abundant supply a
3: less right thanks very much um connor i think that you talk about a forgotten aspect of the british political system at the moment is reform uk was supposed to be starting it was supposed to become a factor now however at the same time before uk is starting suddenly all the European issues became massively pro-government and became massively pro-government in a soft, Eurosceptic way. That here was Europe completely bundling up, you know, having a go at Britain constantly. And here was the government standing up for Britain in an entirely sensible way, which basically took the wind out of any shells Reform UK, by God. Now, I'm not saying Reform UK going to be doing massively well anyway. No, I think it's a bit silly to imagine they could be as big as UKIP was in the post-Brexit world. Or even as big as the Brexit party. No, it, indeed. But it certainly it didn't help them that out of the gates, suddenly there was a massive wave of US scepticism coming in and all of it was funnelled rather healthily to the British government because it's been a while since there's been a healthier wave of US scepticism in Britain, I would argue, because usually there's always sort of uncomfortable tones to it, there's lots of yikes takes whereas this time, it was just sort of most British people going, you know what Europe has just really messed this one up, haven't they? And that's obviously not done massive favours for Keir Starmer and Labour either, because obviously a big part of his pitch over the last few months is that he wants to win back these supposedly Brexit-y Red Wall seats, and suddenly you know, that Labour would quite like people to forget the European issue for once, and now the European issue's come back, and you know rightly or wrongly, there's going to continue to be the perception that where Europe is a factor, people will vote Conservative. I'm not sure how correct that is, but I but that's roughly what people have been saying for the last year. I imagine that's what they're thinking at Labour HQ, and they're not going to be completely happy with this idea that, you know, Europe has become this big topic of conversation again right at the time where they're trying desperately to get any lead in the polls they can, that mm. this would be really bad for Labour just because they want the conversation off Europe they've wanted the conversation off Europe frankly since before the referendum happened but they were unsuccessful (laughs) then seemingly they're still unsuccessful now they're going to be extremely unhappy about this it's a massive coup for the Tories because not only is it an issue that they've done really well on but it's an issue that just it being in play at all helps them you know there were certain issues which help certain parties by them being discussed you know for Labour, nice. that's the NHS. For the Tories, undoubtedly, that's I Europe.
1: I see Alistair nodding there. Uh, do you agree that this is, is not playing into Labour's hands at all? And I mean, Keir Starmer's done a lot of work to shift Labour away from being seen as overwhelmingly pro-European, despite the fact that the, the, the bulk of its vote remains pro-Remain. So do you think that this is an issue that is overwhelmingly against Labour?
2: I would have hoped, and I think leadership is sort of thinking on the same lines here, that the word Brexit would be buried and we could talk about something else such as international trade. That's the word that would replace Brexit. (laughs) It would be about looking and being this altruistic nation across the seas. But then again, we're dragged into the the toils of Europe. And I think people are fed up in that way and they see the decisiveness of the Conservatives as something that can deal with europe's nonsense whereas labour is a bit more sort of um hesitant yeah yes it's a bit more nuanced perhaps which isn't as decisive as people like be on this issue and um well that's the problem with referendums they create a divide and there's no time for healing Mm. Great, george i'm gonna ask you Mm. what do you think well
0: you see i don't think i've got anything that can be said on the issue of Labour getting to grips with Europe, That's not been said by a fantastic two panelists, which is why I just wanted to briefly circle back on the fact that whilst we've had this big discussion of Euroscepticism and how um, issues in Europe have boosted the Tories at home, I want to just talk about another thing to do with this whole area, which proves a fear of mine, which is that the mainland of the UK does not care about Northern Ireland and generally the only time they cared about it was when they politically had to, and now they don't have to, that care's gone. And I'm talking about the situation that's going off with Northern Ireland with the supermarkets mm. and the fact that now, regularly inside the Telegraph, which, let's face it, um, is basically the Tories' place they were, where they want to dump ideas, to see how it floats. They're talking about resuming a hard border, which would obviously breach the Good Friday Agreement. Um, throughout this entire year we've had nothing but stories in Northern Ireland about how over there the border and the disruption is just not going away and it's continuing and surprisingly despite how much you know it was taught about the soft border and the hard border and what have you during the up to a trade talks. So the fact this is all going off now has just been completely ignored by the I don't want to use the phrase political class because that makes me sound like Darren Grimes but um <laughs> that's probably the only word but well, you repeat. know it's
1: right it's the right term I think uh Northern Ireland has been overwhelmingly forgotten and I think everyone on this panel will agree Uh, So I'm not going to ask that question because I I think the consensus is that Northern Ireland has well and truly been shafted. And I'm sure the DUP are looking at themselves and thinking, what the hell were we doing? My question is, therefore, a little bit more hypothetical. Do we think that this situation would have been the same if Theresa May was prime minister? Had she had she survived this long, do you think Northern Ireland would be as scuppered as it is now? Because she she seemed to put an awful lot of effort into trying (laughs) To keep Northern Ireland sort of protected, is this a Tory-wide issue or is it Johnsonite Tories that have left let, let Northern Ireland down?
0: Does it, Does anyone have an answer? Because I'm still in the stage of trying to imagine a world where Theresa May made it beyond June 2019.
1: <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> well, I did Great. say it's hypothetical, not realistic. No,
0: I know <laughs> it said hypothetical, but even then, it's just it's difficult to imagine her dealing with any of the scenarios that came forward. I mean, trying to think of her soldiering on with the non-majority in the Commons. Um, for two years mm-hmm. somehow miraculously getting a deal through despite the fact that that's what brought down her premiership and then dealing with this uh,
1: so it, the northern um, ireland was irre. Ir- ir- f- you know it was forsaken for f- irregardless Is that i i
0: you? i get the feeling that if theresa may or a theresa may style politician had managed to take over the tory party and lead it through the entire brexit process i think the brexit we would have got would have been way more close to the eu it would be such a less focus on international Britain, despite the fact there'd be some rhetoric behind it. Um, We'd have the International Trade Department still, but I don't think it'd be like Liz Truss's operation right now where she's literally just running around signing trade deals left, right and centre. I I think it'd be a much more... um, it kind of nod to the, the the notion of the idea rather than an actual mm. thing because I reckon the deal we would have got and then also the subsequent trade deal would have meant would be much closer in terms of like customs and regulations and we would have gone out of our way to really concede to the EU so that the uh, question of the border would have been a lot better handled so I do think that this is the result of kind of the Johnsonite wing of the Tory party being in charge I think if we'd had whatever few Theresa Mayites type. Mayites,
1: yeah. yeah, Mayites. That's what we. Call I don't them. think there are any left at all now. Oh, I don't, if they, if they, if they don't know if they oh, were. Theresa May is
2: still an MP. She is. She she <laughs> nearly
1: killed Marc Francois for sitting in in her seat, which is of course yeah. something we can all get behind.
2: Oh uh, yeah. Um
1: I mean,
0: you know, he's got um, the survival tactics thanks to the territorial army, so you know, it's a bit <laughs> tough. Fight.
1: I'd like to see him on that hunted program. No. Um Connor mate, you're been... very very keen to see if he could work make his way out the building at the start, to be
3: honest. <laughs> oh, no.
1: Connor, you, you've been very quiet. Would you like to go?
3: Yeah, I don't think anything would have changed because I think Tavita mate would Pay homage to it a bit more, if for no other reason than uh, she formed the coalition with the DUP, so she—it's her bed to lie in. But the, the issue with the Irish border isn't so much a political issue as it is a physical issue. That you can only have an alignment of the border that's in the Irish Sea or in the island of Ireland. There's no that you have to choose between one of the two of them, and either way, you're going to be dividing up Ireland now. Is it possible that Theresa May puts the border in the Irish Sea as opposed to between the Republic and Northern Ireland? Maybe. I think, you know, the whole thing with her being close to DUP, I think that's, if anything, less likely than what happened with Boris Johnson. And he didn't do it. But even then, you're just going to get similar situations, but in reverse, where instead of, you know, suddenly a massive flare-up of... uh, nationalist tensions you might get a sudden flare-up of unionist tensions because suddenly they're cut off from britain which they see themselves a part of because no matter what way you slice it northern ireland is in such an it's in a position where it shares that physical border with the republic with the eu but it shares an emotional border if you like with mainland britain that either way you have to cut somewhere and you know the only other way you can't cut somewhere is if the is if the UK remains for all intents and purposes in European borders. But I don't think there's a single Tory on the planet who would possibly sign off on that trade deal because they would sign off on it, and before they got home, there'd be a new Tory leader. You know, <laughs> it would be a complete non-starter. So, either way, Ireland has to be divided, either down the Irish Sea from Britain or across the border. I think. Basically, the the most logical way for Theresa May to do it, because of that DUP support, means she would also have to place it as at the Irish border between you know Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. That you know for maybe for different reasons, the Johnson, because you know she does care about Northern Ireland more, maybe because she's focused so much on her DUP partners. But at the end of the day, that doesn't matter because Brexit, you know, so thoroughly ruins any any reconciliation on the island of ireland that no matter what way you were going to approach it you were going to ruin it somehow Mm. you know maybe she'd ruin it in completely new ways that we can't yet imagine but it's still (laughs) ruined so i think it's an odd hypothetical
0: what we can move on to though is discussing everyone's favorite um labor leader Keir Starmer, as he's in a bit of a bind in the last few weeks We touched on this in the previous recording that Labour is declining in the polls and recently the columnists and journalists in the kind of the political class, the Telegraph, Times and even a couple of columnists of the Eye have decided suddenly Keir looks weak and ineffectual and they've decided to turn on him after a year or so we kind of had this grace period where Keir would pop up in you know the Telegraph writing articles and everything would be kind of okay. So I want to divide what I want to ask into three parts, I'm going to start the first part which is uh, to our panel. What can Keir do to stop the negative portrayal of his leadership in the way that it is? Not in terms of just stopping any criticisms or whatsoever. What can you do to kind of stop the current onslaught by the uh, political commentariat? And uh, should we start with Alistair?
2: I think there's um, there's an importance to the grace period in the presentation of Keir Starmer in the media. So with the general population, the way that the, the sort of media diet is, they believe him to be a fundamentally good man. Or sort of an honourable man or an honest man, just at the moment he's on the wrong path or lacking the courage. So it's not any, uh sort of an ingrained problem for Kia. He can move off it, and people will see it as genuine. So this is sort of more of a sort of a flaring up of old problems for Keir, in mm. that he doesn't seem to represent a sort of a forward policy initiative, and I think that's kind of because we're going to be developing policy for the post-COVID world, Um, but that's very difficult. I think the big thing will be the budget, which we sort of tried to dissect in the last recording. I'm not trying to sort of repace my steps there, but if you can get something out there and have Annalise Dodds hitting big, having himself hitting big, and becoming these big, bold figures in the public imagination, then he will be able to turn back that tide and combat bad um, stories against himself.
0: Okay, so you're, you're going down the road. Basically, we just need some good, honest policy being put out there, which we have to believe that in the next week or so we're going to start getting. So, hurrah. Um, Connor, what's your take?
3: I mean, Keith Starmer's problem is that, you know, you can debate to, to the end of days, you know, the efficacy of Boris Johnson labelling him Captain Hindsight. You know, and maybe it's, you know, complete nonsense, maybe there's some thought to it, but the problem is, there's a lot of people that Keir Starmer wants to vote for him, are people that also believe in the Captain Hindsight slander, Well, I call it slander, <laughs> maybe you think it's slander, maybe you think it's perfectly valid, you know, previous comments I've made on this podcast might lead you to think I lean one way or the other, but whatever way you put it, there is a perception around Keir Starmer that he is not a leading figure, that in a way in a different kind of way to Jeremy Corbyn, certainly. But Jeremy Corbyn was willing to go out and say things. They were not usually very good things, but he was willing to go out and stake his claim on causes. And often he would be the first person to go out there. For good reason, he was the first person to go out and try and argue these cases, but he would do it. Whereas Keir Starmer is seen predominantly by politicos as a following figure. And, you know, what doesn't help is stuff like before he was leader... You know the thing people knew Keir Starmer for was that he was Shadow Secretary of State for Leaving the European Union. He was pro Remain. Suddenly he takes over. Now Labour have done a 180 shift against you know pro Europeans, and this is doesn't help for the perception either. Where Keir Starmer seems to follow where Keir Starmer thinks, you know, not even where Keir Starmer thinks. Keir Starmer is just doing what most people agree that a Labour leader vaguely needs to do. He doesn't seem to be putting forward his own agenda. Now, maybe putting forward a whole bunch of policy will help if it's like groundbreaking new policy that he's going to present with such vigour and it's going to change the way we think of like these policies and these institutions. But I speculate that it's basically going to be a bunch of vaguely left to centre solutions that most people will go, "Wow, that sounds vaguely sensible," and I definitely vote for it. But I have no reason to particularly change my opinions or anything over it. Keir Starmer doesn't strike me as the kind of person that is willing to stake Labour out on potentially controversial ground in order to present real radical policy solutions, which, if as, anything...
0: There's a bit of a just a quick counter thing to that. Well, she might be against the idea of Keir Starmer doing that as a person. Would you see it perhaps in the realms of possibility that he takes some of the more out-there performers in the shadow cabinet, such as Lisa Nandi and performs almost a Clement Attlee routine of getting his... Um, Cabinet members to do the staking out for him almost.
3: I mean, yeah, that would be a perfectly valid thing to do as long as he like associates himself with them, because mm. then you sort of put all the political fallout on them and take all the political grace yourself, which is not a thing the shadow cabinet would probably like very much, but would probably work. Just the, the idea in my mind, Keir Starmer needs to stake himself out more. That he's viewed, you know, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing in the abstract. Keir Starmer is viewed as the safe sensible, moderate, you know, fluffy, warm choice, which Keir Starmer wants to be, in my mind, that Keir Starmer wants to be this person that everyone can look at and go, you know what, he probably could lead the country, but he's not done anything to make anybody go, I should leave what I'm doing to support him. He's not a rouser-upper, he's the consensus guy, which is, which is a different approach and can work, but it would work against sort of like a 2019 Boris Johnson that was ludicrously unpopular, not the modern Boris Johnson that somehow has staked about himself out as some sort of leadership figure. You know, a lot of people hate him in the post-COVID world, but that Boris Johnson seems to be the more, you know, I'm trying to think of the best word because "statesman" like a lead like doesn't quite do it, but that he stakes himself out as the more, you know venturer, like the person that is more willing to go out there and lead you forward than Keir Starmer who's willing to just sort of preside if that makes sense. Keir Starmer is not the kind of person that would preside over the country not lead it, if you get me. Yeah, I, I get
0: you because sort of the situation is that Boris Johnson has been in charge during the worst health crisis this country has faced, possibly in like you know, a century or so and whatever else we may think of he's been on the telly every other day, basically leading press conferences and generally has managed to make himself associated because he did that thing in may where every other day he'd come out and say i'm taking personal responsibility for reopening i'm taking personal responsibility for the vaccine program i'm taking personal responsibility and that meant well when it's actually all roughly worked out and the country isn't on fire people see him as actually going out there and trying to make it work so mm. with yeah. you with with your belief that basically Kia needs to stake out what he believes in more and perhaps be more proactive and make him seem as less of a presider and more of an actor and Alistair's belief that the fact that um, Kia just basically needs to get some bloody policy on the table do you reckon that will not only stop the negative headlines, but the second part of the question, will that actually help shore up the Labour vote, which we know from polling can go up to as high as 42% in the current climate, because that's what we've seen in um, Opinion and YouGov polls before now. We know they're cap- that Labour is capable of having these ish leads of 5%. Do you reckon doing these things might lead to that? And we'll start with you again, Connor.
3: I mean, it can't hurt, certainly. I am sceptical... I keep laying this out every time on the podcast, that Labour should not necessarily be unhappy with the fact that they aren't five points ahead. That, you know, it's easy to look at the current climate and all the things going wrong in the UK and go, well, obviously, why isn't X party 20 points ahead in the polls? But the reality is that has had to climb up so much that, you know, even staking out level pegging with the Tories, is not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Even go against the local elections, it's easy to go. Well, how can we be behind going against the locals? Well, I would point you look where these locals are building from—a set of really, really not very good Corbyn locals, you know. And Corbyn was a Labour leader that you know, famously did not perform well in local elections at all. And you could discuss all day why that was, but that is the reality of it. That again, you look at what Keir has to build on. He doesn't need to sort of get. You know, this peak 41 42 percent that we know he can get that he doesn't need to do, necessarily do all this now at the same time he has to keep level pegging and the fact that we're seeing in some polls now that even in like who's the best leader polls between himself and Boris Johnson that Boris Johnson is clawing ahead that's really not good That he does have to do something to get level pegging and maybe you know issues with these policies rolling these out you know Focusing more on the post-COVID world, which the Tories are neglecting, because let's face it, there is nothing that you know. I, well, I would argue you could argue. I'm sure Conservatives disagree with me on this, but there is nothing that a Conservative Party can offer to radically, you know, deal with the post-COVID world. That this is something that a Social Democratic Labour Party is much better equipped to deal with than a party that is, you know, literally conservative that doesn't want to see change. That Rolling this out, especially as people are starting to look to the future, like Alistair said earlier, as they're starting to see hope, it's building on that and trying to present your vision of what the post COVID Britain could be. That continuing to focus on the virus, which you should do obviously because he's dealing with the opposition, but focusing so much solely on it is not for anyone's good because at the end of the day, even when you know he says sensible things. It's stuff that the government ends up having to do in two weeks anyway. So all it basically sounds like in retrospect is that Keir Starmer and the government have said the same thing but at different points, which isn't necessarily the best thing for to hear from a leader of the opposition. That there is very good ground to be staked out in the future that Keir Starmer, you know, perhaps that this built into the captain hindsight perception, is not going into. He's very much a ad hoc politician.
0: I do agree with you on how, you know, I can despair if um, basically Keir Starmer and the government seem to be on the same page, because if I hear that, oh, they're all the same rhetoric that we saw in the 2015 run-up to general election reappear, I might actually shoot myself, because I despise, I despise that terminology. Uh, uh,
3: yeah, it, it, yeah that, that's terrible rhetoric, but I'm just saying, in as it applies to, like, Rollout of COVID stuff. There's some stuff that basically everyone agrees on anyway. That to the point that I would argue that Keir Starmer doesn't need to go on telly and say he agrees with a government that's got nearly 200 more seats than him. Yeah. That isn't a thing that he needs to do. You know, obviously it's important for the opposition to back the government when the government really needs backing. But I don't think there's been a point in the COVID crisis when truly that's been the case. That you know, don't go on telly and say stupid stuff to have a go at the government. But don't go on telly just to say you know here's a sensible thing for the government to do, and then the government do the sensible thing, because then, you know, post hoc, you're almost endorsing the government's future actions, which obviously, in truth, that's Keir Starmer just saying, no, do this now, why the hell aren't you doing this? But it's not good for Ke- to have a clip of Keir Starmer saying, here's what Boris Johnson should do, and then Boris Johnson doing it, and they go, Keir Starmer clearly agrees with me, why vote for Keir Starmer? You know, don't get that clip out there.
0: Well, so we basically, um, to get a little pigging vote, you're just basically saying, you know, focus on building on the vision of the future and whatever you do, don't go on telly, uh, which, sound advice for most politicians, media <laughs> appearances, terrible all around. Alistair, the, mate, what's your take? What can Labour do to uh, get themselves back up and shore up this vote share, which they'd start to see plunge down a bit? The,
2: the big problem we're seeing is that nobody wants to talk about the post-pandemic world. Because we know from ETA to help that, like we know from furlough, we know from business support that, you know, the UK has a huge debt problem. You know, we have a, a, a soaring amount of sovereign debt and the only way we're gonna be able to deal with this is through austerity measures. Now, like, austerity is a combination or one or the other of either tax rises or spending cuts. You know, so tax rises are going to come. And the way you can do that and bring the public sort of with you is, green taxes um which Sunak has hinted that but fundamentally nobody is going to like tax rises and that's going to make government very very unpopular from a low tax sort of conservative perspective on their back benches to you know the man on the street who's going to have to pay out more the tax burden is going to increase on everyone the second thing is public transport we talk about a green recovery but we need to radically rethink public transport People, the confidence in going on a bus or going on the tube or going in a taxi is just going to be rock, rock, rock. You know, People might walk, people might cycle, but sales of second-hand cars, the most polluting type of cars that we really have because they're old engines, are through the roof. There's something like a, a million of them have been bought since the start of the pandemic in Britain. So we need to radically rethink how we can make public transport safe and give people confidence. I think that's where we need to, as a Labour Party concentrate on how we get the deficit down and get the finances under control, rebuild the economy through proper spending, and mm. then two, public transport. I mean, it seems like such a small thing, but that way of shifting towards a green economy is so reliable, but it is just not hygienic enough for people anymore. And as a nation, we have become so much more conscious of hygiene. So your
0: basic suggestion for how Keir Starmer could help build up the photo share back is to basically radically think about the post-COVID world and then also combine that with an agenda of green which broadly the public is in consensus that we need to be doing more of whilst also looking through the optic of transport because that basically affects everyone it's like how Corbyn was ridiculed for talking about buses in that one PMQ session in 2018 but actually that broke through to a lot of people and very briefly Labour started to do well in the polls again because it seemed like he was understanding the needs of the people. So um, ironically enough, again, both of you seem to have gone for roughly the same thing of to get back up in the polls, Labour needs to basically step up its policy game, get better at communication and actually show in the vision they've got for you know the future. So that comes then to the third part of the question, which is what can Kia do to stave off a leadership challenge? Because I'm not going to lie, what started off as a joke in January is worryingly becoming like an actual thing. Because obviously, um, during the last week, in between the failed attempts at recording and this one, during the last session, I, I asked as a joke question, you know, uh, who, who would you like to see challenge Keir for leadership of the Labour Party? And then, lo and behold, two days later, the Huffington Post comes out showing that Richard Burgeon is um, spearheading a call from the left of the party to have a special conference to talk about how Keir was running the party and how democracy needs to be restored. The Ford inquiry into racism within the Labour Party has been delayed, which, shows some horrific abuse towards Diane Abbott, which does nothing but inflame tensions with the party along factional lines, meaning that I genuinely think we might see some kind of attempt against Keir, regardless of what happens in this election. So what, what can Keir do to stop the very silly thing of having someone to deal with another internal election? And I'm going to turn to the Liberal Democrat on the panel, Connor.
3: I mean, last time I said that, th- in the unfortunately botched recording, last time I said that, that this wouldn't necessarily actually be the worst thing for Keir Starmer that really having Richard Bergen of all people get up on a stage and talk about how bad you are might be the best thing that Keir Starmer could possibly do for his media campaign. You know, this is uh, this is a figure that even within Labour circles is not that widely respected, you know, and you can cite anything you want, but also the fact that, you know, his deputy leadership campaign did not exactly go as well as he planned. He is, you know, the popular perception is even worse, you know, that Richard Bergen is for a lot of people one of the reasons or represents one of the reasons that they did not vote for Labour in 2019. They haven't voted Labour maybe in the better part of a decade. That to have Richard Bergen get up on stage and talk about how Keir Starmer is everything that he hates about the modern Labour Party might get a lot of former Labour Party people going, hang on a minute. Maybe Keir Starmer's the type of Labour person that I actually used to vote for, that I could get behind. You know, obviously, that's not going to work for everyone. You know, Labour do basically still want left-wing voters. And you could look at, like, Green Party polling now and pull that up. And you say, he, here you see left-wing people who are abandoning the party. But I don't think there's ever been a single example of, like, the left-wing vote actually staying out of Labour for an election, you know we always see sort of in midterm polling that parties like the Greens do do much, much better. You know, you can look at the Greens now, how they're even polling above. My own party, the Lib Dems, and this happens fairly regularly, and every time people are surprised by it. I think mostly because it's always nice to have a little bit of Lib Dem bashing from a lot of people, but it is a fairly regular occurrence at points in midterm, just have the Greens come along and get lots of polling. But guess what? Usually that left-wing vote returns. That you know, Maybe if if the leadership challenge spiralled out of control and more people came forward so it became a general leadership battle. That would be terrible. <laughs> but if it's literally just Richard Berg and the left, I don't think that would be a bad thing at all. You know, this has done marvelous things for parties in the past to have the extreme wing come forwards, try and challenge you, and then just show, look, I'm not them. You know, and you can point to numerous examples of that. You know, even in le- even in like election campaigns where parties were seen to be doomed, like. To use an American example, in the 1948 election, Harry Truman and the Democrats were supposed to be doomed. Then both the far right and far left split off from the Democrats, and suddenly he won. And a large part of that was because it rid the Democrats of the stain of, you know, southern racism and, you know, possible communist subversion in the Progressive Party, that it actually can be a good thing to have parts of the party that the public strongly disagrees with, come forward and say they hate you because the public is just going to implicitly go I disagree with them they disagree with Keir Starmer therefore I agree with Keir Starmer that this is actually could be an entirely positive thing for Labour
0: well I'm glad you used a very contemporary reference there of the 19th election That's, that's lovely do you do you agree with that kind of analysis Alistair what's your take
2: yes um I think we're far enough away from election for that to work if we were a year away from the election, I wouldn't be advocating it. I think a, a form of calculated malice in victory is what he needs. The idea of, you know, sort of bring it on, put up or shut up, as John Major said, I think. You know, they, they've got to bring it on, and that way Keir Starmer can rid the Labour Party of a sort of petulant uh, criticism and shore up and consolidate his critics as genuine and justified because there are criticisms and obviously you know he's not as far to the left but if he can reform the left wing through a sort of constructive malice into uh an approachable you know a uh, constructive opposition within his own party then he can keep he can hold on to those left-wing votes and he can set out his stall with the support that idea of sort of proper unity rather than sort of pet- petulant dogma i think Part of this comes from the inner workings of the Labour Party. We, you know, we talked a lot about over the last five years of being democratized. I think we've been committee-atized, if that makes sense. We've gone through this stage where to get anything done, you have to go through four or five committees. and All this does is create bureaucracy, spending on elections that are internal rather than in public. And also it justifies little caucuses and you know, um, factions And sort of all this sort of dog mind fighting and pickling within ourselves rather than focusing on who we need to win over in the public so i sort of say to the um richard bergen put up or shut up i will say that again because if richard bergen challenges i am fairly certain he will lose and i do not think that will damage Keir star at all because we're far enough away from an election
0: nice analysis, um, equally we're all going to look very um, red in the face if it turns out it's John Tricky who heads up the uh, challenge or Zaryl Satana um, now, I will hand back over to Rob for another question, but before I do, I just very want to actually ask of himself, what's your take on what's been said do you have anything you want to throw out there into the um, forum?
1: Uh, I I take the opinion that the the left wouldn't be able to get far enough to even trigger the leadership contest. I, I believe you still need a number of MPs to to do it i think it's quite difficult for that to happen it could happen i don't know enough about the internal workings of the labour party to say whether or not it definitely won't happen at the moment it just seems like a bit of saber rattling to me the left they had their big moment in the leadership election where they sort of rallied around rebecca long bailey she got into the shadow cabinet was it shadow education secretary i apologize i can't remember exactly what her role was yeah she was then uh very publicly sacked and no one really seemed to react there was a bit of a solidarity thing amongst some certain members of the left but it didn't damage Labour in the polls and the left kind of lost a bit of influence through that and their influence has been dwindling and the stronger Starmer gets the less important it is for the you know the the left wing is less important because Starmer's doing better without the overt support of this left wing so at the moment I think people like Burgeon and Zara Sultana uh, going on to, uh, you know, broadcast media and into social media and, and saying broadly negative things about the leadership. I don't think it really matters that much, because if they go for it, if they go for a leadership contest, they will lose. There is not a, a big figure on the left that can challenge Starmer. He doesn't they don't have that support. I don't think they have that support from the membership. So we're gonna move away from polling and stuff like that, we've spoken a lot about it. Um, and we're gonna to move to back to the pandemic sort of thing and how that's in- impacting our democracy. Uh, and most you know, specifically, it's there's new guidance out on how to actually run elections. And the hint is you can't leaflet, you can't do door knocking. And a lot of the tactics afforded to independent candidates and smaller parties who make the democracy of this ridiculous country work, Are now being taken away from them. So, what does this say for local government elections? Are they less legitimate now? Is is it a mistake to ban door knocking and leafleting? Um, So, you know, what what's your take on these new guidelines? And we're going to start uh,
2: with Alistair. Um, Well, um, the big Stuff at the moment up here in Scotland is the daily briefings by Nicola Sturgeon, and whether or not the BBC is right to keep broadcasting them as we go into an elect- election campaign period. I mean, the answer there's terribly difficult. What are they as important as they once were? I'd probably say not. But on special occasions, such as when she announces the exit plan for Scotland, I think that's probably justified. Um, so there's sort of a bit of balance and nuance required there. The door-to-door stuff and the lack of leafleting is pretty dire, I've got to say, in terms of um, democracy. I think we're going to see an interesting case, because if postal voting properly takes off, turnout could survive. But if, as I suspect, is going to happen, certainly up here, that turnout is just going to slump, and whether or not that affords local authorities any more legitimacy, is a difficult question. I mean, I know the Liberal Democrats like to challenge low turnout elections from 2005 onwards. So I think local elections, we might have to see them rerun if they're not uh, competent enough in getting turnout because you cannot have councils being run on 20% turnout of the electorate. That's just not an affordable way to maintain democracy or to make decisions at a local level. It's not really sort of taking from the vast pool of ideas that we have in communities in our country. So I personally would have them delayed three months until after the vaccine process is properly being rolled out and you can have these, but it doesn't look like we're going to get that. So we're just going to have to make do and sit time.
1: Yeah, I I don't know how the election campaign is going to go. it's not as terrible for council elections as it is perhaps for the devolved administrations because they will be running a country. It's, it's bad enough that people, you know, in Kirklees, Kirklees say gets, what, 30% of the vote come May the 6th. It gets 30% of the vote and Kirklees is then being run by only, you know, people who've been chosen by 30% of the electorate. That's bad enough. Kirklees is a fairly big area. I think it's one of the largest, if not the largest metropolitan council area in the country, or something along those lines. But if that situation is replicated in the Welsh Senate elections or in the Holyrood elections, you'll have a country being run off off of the the mandate given to them by you know twenty to forty percent of of the electorate, and it's very risky. It's very risky.
2: That's quite interesting. If I can just jump in, but instead of uh, being forty percent, I'll remind. You, um... I don't know if you're aware, in 2011, the SNP got their first majority on a 46% turnout. <laughs> turnout in Scottish Parliament elections are appalling. At the last election, I believe it was 56%, which is you know, a bit up. And in 2007, I believe it was something like 52 So if we need to get, I mean, poster voting is meant to bounce up um, uh, turnout, but there's no automatic registration, so I don't think that's going to happen. If anything, it's going to slightly survive. but in Scotland, I, I, would, I would be surprised if it gets over 50%. And then again, the legitimacy of the mandate there is under question. That's a very difficult um, point.
1: <laughs> I'm a bit, I don't really know what to Sorry. ask. I know what, what I want to ask is, is, how does it impact the legitimacy in Scotland? That's what I want to ask. Is it seen, is, is Holyrood seen as a legitimate body? And I know that probably sounds a very stupid question, but please answer it anyway.
2: Yeah, yes. People on the whole see it as this, as as a parliament that has the right to govern. But people don't necessarily see it as a parliament that is governing with any relevance or interest to their lives, as it were. I think partly that's because we've had this sort of subcontract austerity idea which is, oh, the Scottish Parliament's not responsible for any of that. It's been imposed from Westminster. That's part of the SNP campaigning technique. But in terms of what the Scottish Parliament has in terms of relevance to people's daily lives, it's pretty poor. And particularly with young people. They don't, young people do not turn out to vote in the Scottish Parliament elections, well, in most elections, but particularly in the Scottish Parliament elections, and then the older generation as well, who didn't have the Scottish Parliament for most of life, and perhaps some of them don't um, recognise it as legitimate. Mm. You know, but does it affect people's understanding and sort of its right to make decisions? No. But does that um, then give mandate for some of the bigger, more ambitious ideas? For Mm. example, the SNP have never managed to outdo the unionist vote in the referendum. So that Mm. 2.1 million figure voted no. Has never voted for, you know, the SNP have never got over, I think, a million point two five uh, votes. So they've never been anywhere near that. And yet they'll claim it's a mandate for an independent. Mm. So, in terms of the big ambitious idea of the constitutional fro- reform, I'd say low turnout does contribute yeah. to a delegitimizing of that. If
1: we move on as well, because that's fascinating, but we talk, we do we do love a chat about Scotland on this uh, on this podcast. Yes, that is. that seems to be the the way we're going. We obviously didn't get last year's local elections, and I believe there's obviously been an awful lot of by-elections that would, in theory, have been called since, up and down the country. In Scotland, they've still been carrying on. In England and uh, Wales, I believe, it's going to be absolute hell (laughs) because there's going to be an awful lot of seats going up. Now, Alistair points out, if people don't turn out to vote because uh, the pandemic is still on, if government doesn't build up that, then you're going to have... Big, big council areas run by twenty less than twenty percent of the total turnout, and that's a problem. So, Conor Docker, what's your
3: take? I mean, my immediate reaction is, is always that somehow or other that it's been so long since a lot of these positions have elections, like especially police and crime commissioners. Although you know maybe that's a position that shouldn't necessarily exist. But that's a whole different debate. That there, that there needs to be elections some point soon. However, having said that, it betrays a terrifyingly thin perception of democracy among the government, that they think that democracy just means that the people can vote, that democr- that an election without a campaign is not democratic, that obviously, you know, people are still going to vote, they're still going to, you know, weigh up in their head which is best, which is the best party, which is the best policies, but without the capacity to to campaign that is you know if you were going to any sort of developing democracy in the world and you were looking at an election even if there was zero fraud there was absolutely like no examples of any vote rigging that it was completely free to fail at the ballot box there was nothing that had been done know, sneakily to make the system you know slightly in favor of this party or that party but no party was allowed to campaign you would obviously go forward to go, well, this you know, this is not actually truly democratic. And that might seem hyperbolic, but that is the state of it. That what is literally happening is that you have an election where, apart from phone campaigning, which is already not the <laughs> most effective or easiest campaigning in the world, and you know, it's not even like great for people that you know in this day and age who likes being called up randomly because it's usually a scam. But apart from that, you have absolutely zero campaign before an election and that is not the way that an election can or should be run, that you can't have an election without a campaign. I I keep reiterating the same point just because that is completely anathema to the democratic process.
1: It's worth pointing out that around my way at least, which is in Huddersfield, HD4, um, that we still get takeaway menus to the door, we still get random bits of leafleting, we still get um, you know, advertisements from places like Sky and TalkTalk Talk trying to get us to buy uh, trying to get us to buy broadband, and it raises the question of if this tat, which is what it is, is tat it's, it's recycling fodder, can be thrust through the the mailbox. Why can't leaflets? I mean, if if paper, you know, being distributed to each house is such a danger, why are these businesses? Why are these corporations being allowed to continue it? But political parties aren't. Now I've done leafleting um, and I won't pretend that I, I think the leafleting was the reason we won the seats that we did win, but it helps. That community helps, that idea, that image of people going around and being on the doorstep being there to talk to people and clear up issues is important. I and mean, the campaigning side of, of a campaign is the important part. And I personally, I wonder if anyone can, would be happy to explain to me, do not understand why a, you know, A4, not A4, that's a bit big, isn't it? A4, A5, I don't know, a little leaflet of, of campaign material from anyone is, is going to really jeopardise our health. So if anyone wants to jump on that at all, anyone, there's no, there's no, Alistair put his hand up, go on. Well, just briefly,
2: um, I did get um, something through the door from our local Lib Dem candidate regarding the Scottish election. Um, the, oh, Alice Cole-Hamilton likes to portray himself as this, uh, the only candidate you hear from all year round and not just at election time. And lo and behold, we did get a leaflet through the door. So I'm not sure if there's guerrilla leafleting going on. Um, but sorry, Entirely like proper, me. I'm sure. Entirely
3: proper, I'm sure.
0: You've just rumbled a um, political underground <laughs> campaign. I hope you're very
1: happy. Oh else. wow! He's going to get cut off by the brothers. <laughs> yeah. they will come from in the
3: nice. Oh, if, no. if they could, they would have cut it off. Alexander Cole Hamilton, by now, I assure you. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> 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 I don't know if that'll get left in. <laughs> the phone campaigning
1: issue becomes even sort of more glaring when you consider that in some in some wards in some councils, there are going to be you know double figure number of parties and independent standing which means in a week in a given week you could get an awful lot of phone calls from people trying to solicit your vote and if anything that's just going to have the opposite effect people are going to switch off they're just going to stop picking up the phone it's it's this new style of campaigning is is very risky for the actual turnout side of things
0: it's also very tech
1: savvy i find because it does
0: rely on you to basically have people who've got the understanding and capacity to build a phone banking operation system and have all these numbers already gone and if you're like a little local party like say i don't know oh the handful of independent parish councillors for instance and you've not got this because you're reliant on being able to knock up the same people and get the same like 20 percent of the vote that you've always gotten for the last 20 years and you don't have their numbers saved you're screwed because you can't get that at all because you obviously with now the gdp compliance laws that are inside you know if everything these days um It's unless you've already got that data before, like the pandemic or even like in the last year, you're you're really going to have a hard time getting any kind of campaigning done. And you're going to be reliant on basically like hanging out in public places and just shouting about your policies and stuff, which I'm I'm all for because I like, you know, standing on a soapbox and proclaiming radicalism like a more angry version
1: of John Major still. Um, If we look at Wales, just briefly, this issue of low turnout, there is actually a party standing to abolish. The Welsh Senate, they're called abolish the assembly, presumably out of spite, but um, they, uh, they stand, as the name suggests, to get rid of the devolved setup in Wales. They are, as of the last Welsh barometer poll, on roughly 7% of the vote in the polls, which is impressive, and it would be enough to win one or two seats in the new Senate. But I, I wonder if a low turnout just reinforces what they're saying is people aren't interested in involved politics wales only very narrowly voted to have the welsh assembly it was extremely close where all the way back when tony blair was uh, having those referendums wales seems to me to be more at risk of this turnout issue than scotland is and i wonder if the panelists and george agree i'm going to start with connor though because he's, he's been he's been dreadfully quiet for connor docker
3: I mean, my, my, my first thought is surely they must be looking to change their, the, the, the name of their... Property. No, they actually, um, sorry, just to jump
1: straight in on here, I think they actually registered the name after the, the Senate became the official name because it got deregistered and then they re-registered with the same name. So it's oh, wow. <laughs> that was spite, I think. Well, can I just say,
0: I love your interventions when you jump in. You, you go really close in on the mic just to really, like, downplay.
3: Kind of just like, no, about, a vote answer, now.
1: I, I, I was actually uh, picking something
3: up. <laughs> Sorry, carry on, Connor. I mean, just parties like that have the benefit of, if somebody is turning up to the polls, like, base, I th- there's better ways to phrase this, but basically in a, in a bad mood with, like, politics in general, they turn up to the polls almost out of spite themselves, and they... And they don't know who to vote for, they're fed up with a lot of it, and then they see a party called Abolish the Welsh Assembly, they might go, you know what, to hell with it, sure. And, you know, a lot of people have argued that maybe this helped UKIP's rise. that a lot of people that sort of turn up to the polls begrudgingly, which just sort of like, hell, what the hell, vote for UKIP. You know, that This might be a phenomenon for some people. Now, that might get lessened by postal votes because you have got uh, longer to just sit there with the vote. And in many ways, that might serve as a moderating effect for a lot of people that maybe you might see with a lot of people with postal votes. uh, Maybe somebody that naturally is quite an ardent Welsh nationalist, they might sit down and maybe their more traditional social democratic tendencies may rise out over time. And they go, you know what, I'll vote for... A safer labour option than implied to come which may right, initiate, oh, <laughs> which may involve a long standing argument about how to. Only one it. of us is right, though, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> that maybe this, that, you know, the method in which people vote could affect it. Now, I've not seen any actual studies or data on this, but I think that's an interesting thing to think about that in a pandemic world where people could be voting by post, maybe this does affect voting behaviour, that people are less likely to vote for perceived radical options in you know, an era where they could just sit out, sit down with their ballot for maybe a few days and then come to a decision. Uh, maybe it'll be the opposite thing where this makes, lets a lot of smaller parties get a look in because people are just sitting there on the day, have to make a choice, they only know about these ones. You know, it could go a whole lot of ways, but I think it could have some interesting effects.
2: Uh, there's far less immediacy in the way you vote. I and in the Welsh Senate... Um... I believe turnout is 46%, 45%, and 42% um, in the over the last three elections. So again, it's got the same sort of turnout problem. I don't see the pandemic saving that at all because lots of people like the sort of ritual of nipping down to the polling station. It feels like you've done something. Oh, you've been productive, you've gone out to the polling station. We're sitting inside in your house and taking a putting an X in the box and then chucking it in the pile to go out with the post. You know, it's it's not quite the same so perhaps that um enthusiasm might go but certainly in terms of research i think it's going to help the smaller parties probably people get to the polling stations oh i've not got any literature on me um well they sounded vaguely good on the television last night x in the box off you go you don't have to think think. it might
1: actually help smaller parties
2: i think so really oh that's (laughs) very interesting
1: do you think it will help smaller parties in the council elections like the, uh, the Yorkshire party or regionalist movements like that. Do you think it will help them or is it? I am
2: waiting for the 2015 style wave of the Yorkshire party to win every seat. <laughs> 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 They've, uh, they have two seats in North Yorkshire.
1: Uh, And they they came, they do, they have two seats in North Yorkshire. I think they have a few parish council seats. They don't really count, though. Sorry, Aidan, they don't really count. Uh, Can I I just say
0: as well that they actually have got double the amount of councillor seats that the abolished the Welsh Assembly Party have.
1: They do indeed. (laughs) Though not in Wales, of course. That would be very impressive. Um, They came fourth overall, I think, in... um, the South Yorkshire Mayor Contest back in 2016, was it? A caracol. recall. Um, it, was, it might have been 2018, actually. Whenever it was, whenever the South Yorkshire Mayoral Contest happened, they came forth there. It was 2017, I believe. Was it 2017? There we go. They came forth there, uh, but that was largely because of a huge Lib Dem vote in Sheffield, which may not exist anymore. We don't know. So who knows, maybe the Yorkshire party could surge and c- claim third from the uh, from the Liberal Democrats in the South Yorkshire contest. Um,
0: I do don't, mate, I don't have anything particularly insightful to throw in, apart from the fact that I've just been having a little um, reminder of the Abolished Wealth Assembly party, because uh, you talked a lot about them in the interlude, and what I will say is, when it comes to parties such as this one, I don't think they're going to do well, even, despite Alistair's Hope about that, and that's that's purely because of the fact that the style of parties which the Bolashov Assembly kind of takes after is UKIP. Because uh, just if you do a cursory Google search and look does
1: at, the... he does have Mark Reckless in yeah, it? Yeah, it. it's got Mark Reckless in. it <laughs> It's, it's got, he's the like bunch... the Sam Allardyce of political parties. He just up <laughs> yeah, and Mark, the of... <laughs> Mark Reckless
0: is trying oh, to Mark. become leader of it. You've got uh, the <laughs> fact that in back in November, the Electoral Commission removed the party from the registry because of the fact the former leader fell out with the party and just didn't renew the party's registration and mm. lodged a rival party registration of the same name, which... Um... Was rejected, wasn't it? <laughs> it was rejected. It was
1: rejected, which is why this party has the same name. I've got the quote here, own. actually.
0: I've got the quote, actually. A spokesman from the original party was quoted opposing the registration, warning Bevan, who's the former party leader, um, against stealing up the party like a thief in the night um it seems to just be mired with different clashes of personalities as i said it's only got one council seat and it's got two seats in the senate but it's only because, because it's bigger than the Lib Dems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. their <laughs> the, the, the defection like the, these kind of little parties they only do really well when you've basically got the situation i'm I'm pure i'm speaking, I'm speaking purely in welsh terms because this is kind of where like i think the question was aiming towards um with Wales, the issue you've got is you need these parties tend to do well when you basically can just say, Oh, look at the governing party, aren't they? a shit show. And look at the right-wing alternative, pretty rubbish. Don't you want something that's gonna do difference? And the bother is that the characters who are standing for all of this, they've been part of so many different attempts at this that it's the the, the credibility is just shot. Like it, it it's kind of like how um I'm trying to think of a, a perfect comparison. I think that would be Chukramuna, who um by the end of 2019, had started off a Labour MP, became an independent MP, became part of Change UK, and then became a Liberal Democrat, all in the span of, like, what, five months? And he was a political joke by the end of it, and to be honest, I kind of see that's where little parties, like, this, they're heading if they're made up with these kind of defectors. I can't speak for the Yorkshire Party, mostly because... They don't really enter my radar.
1: Um, Oof. But <laughs> Oof for the Yorkshire party, Oof, the Yorkshire party. Um, but I, I, that's all I've really got to say on this. Just say about Wales is it seems Wales th- that kind of right wing populism seems to do much better in Wales, which is how I think the abolished the Welsh Assembly have ended up on seven percent because the, there has been that vacuum since UKIP collapsed looking for someone to take up that anti-establishment role within Welsh politics. I don't think the, I don't know how well Brexit Party ever did. I know they came first in the EU elections in Wales. I don't know on the polling side of things for the Senate how well they did. I think it was roughly around the 15% mark, sort of almost exactly sucking up the UKIP vote as it is. Reform yeah. UK hasn't but, done that yet and abolish the Welsh Assembly seems to have filled in the gap for now. So it would remain to see how that an
0: and also, we must remember that the Welsh Conservatives are going through a bit of a thing right now because they've gone through another leader who resigned after oh, yeah. if, if we all remember that, because, you know, that happened in exactly To be honest, that's...
1: I forget the Welsh
2: Conservatives have a leader. I just call them the <laughs> Welsh Conservatives. The, Wales has an, a, a, the right wing in Wales has a real issue. They've got four parties. They've got UKIP mm. reform, abolished the Welsh Assembly, and then there's Gwad Gwad, which stands for Fatherland, Fatherland, which is a sort of
3: <laughs> right
2: wing, it genuinely is a, it's a nationalist, as in an independent Wales right wing party. Uh, and, it, and it stands for this idea of the sort of old conservative Wales, you know, sort of medievalist almost in the way that it thinks. Take back Chester. <laughs> God,
1: take 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 all of it. They've also the Welsh Independence Party, not Plaid Cymru. It's called the Welsh Independence Party, um, and they are formed by someone who left Plaid Cymru. <laughs> Apparently, Plaid Cymru weren't pro independence, and also the Welsh Independence Party is also there. It's a very odd setup in Wales. It's fascinating.
0: Are those chaps who did that weird video where the big animated
1: whale—no, well, like, that's yes, Cymru. Oh, good, good, because I was going to say like. Oh. <sighs> set back the cause of Welsh independence an, uh, an awful long way. And I, 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 I can seen, only hope the SNP hire the same person.
3: I've seen a lot of people suggest that that's actually an English false flag party or campaign that's been set up in order to defame Welsh independence to the point that... Oh, Alistair is very staunchly shaking his head at me right now. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
2: I, 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 going to university in Wales, I know people who are part of Yes Cymru they are native Welsh speakers. They are, you know, proud. Is that what
3: they want you to think, about?
2: And <laughs> 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 it's an entirely false flag operation, But oh. it is a genuine movement. Because people are fed up with Plaid Cymru. Plaid Cymru are just um, an organisational mess. And they're... Were, original... were they not
3: enchanted by their attempt to form a rainbow coalition last Welsh elections? Did that not sufficiently uh, entice their appetites? <laughs>
2: Exactly, they tried to form a coalition with the UKIP and um, the Conservatives, and it did. Well, Leanne Wood essentially went after that. Good Lord. Well, we've we've talked about um, false flags,
0: and I think since I think we've gone down this topic of conversation If we're going to move towards our final question which um, typically is a bit of a lighter end of the spectrum and uh, on a new regular feature of the podcast I'm introducing a section called politician or partridge a game where we take facets from the fictional broadcaster Alan Partridge and we supplement them with genuine um, details or statements from a politician now this week's politician I've picked to kick it off with is Chris Grayling, everyone's favourite ex-minister. You might remember his brief extended to prisons and transport and rails, and then weirdly he left the government on his own turn. And also, Rob, you're going to be playing as well, so do be listening carefully.
1: I, I am listening carefully. Uh, no. I think I think you've said that because you know that I haven't really seen much Partridge. Uh,
0: yes, exactly, which is why yes. it's even better. So um, it- I'm going to read you two statements, um, but both there's one statement from each person. I just want you to tell me which statement is by whom. So um, both of both of these statements are relating to home burglaries. Okay. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <And the> <laughs> anticipation <laughs> on Ross's How are you doing, Connor? Oh god. <laughs> so this is statement number one. Householders who defend themselves against burglars should not be expected to exercise cool, calm judgment. You're not calmly detached. You're probably very cross and very frightened. A mixture of both. So that's statement one. Okay. And this is statement two. What if a burglar breaks into your house and your children are lying in bed at night? What are you to do? Shown the family silver? With the kind of crippling mortgages this country's homeowners are struggling with, surely you'll be able to repel an intruder.
1: was oh, really irritating because the, the, the second one, I, I started thinking, that's got to be Partridge. But it, it's, got, it's got this horrific grayling twinge to it that only a bumbling moron could, could have. I'm going to guess that the first one was, was Partridge, the second one was Grayling. Uh, okay, so you're
0: going statement number one, Partridge, statement two, Grayling. Uh, Alistair?
2: I'm going Partridge, Grayling with Rob on this one.
0: Uh, oh, okay, so you and Rob, so both of you are saying that the first statement is Partridge and the second one is Grayling.
3: See, see, I could have sworn that I've heard the first statement and I've not watched Partridge in a while. If you put me in court, I would be like, uh, yes, this is a thing I've heard Chris Grayling say.
0: <laughs> okay, so all of you are saying that statement number one is Partridge. Oh, no, I'm
3: saying statement number one is Chris Grayling.
0: Okay, so you're saying number one is Chris Grayling and number two is Partridge. It must be. Well, I am pleased to say, Connor, that you're bang right, and that yes! David number one. David number one was delivered in the House of Commons in 2012. Oh, my <laughs> I knew,
3: I remembered it. I knew, I remembered it. And
0: section, and the second one is a section from um, I Partridge, which uh, we need to talk about Alan, where he's talking about Michael's uh, obsession with guns, and I've left off the final sentence, which is, "Just Dame low," the law should say. <laughs>
1: Where, hang on <laughs> what, which, who said that one I missed That's that Partridge
0: <laughs> well, that, that wraps up this week's section of Politician or Partridge tune in next week
3: for more Justame <laughs> low has been Chris Grayling's ministerial motto for quite some time <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm certainly probably said it when he was there with the big net when the gaswick drone attacked <sighs>
1: Oh God! Does everyone
0: remember the Gatwick drone? I think I, I remember one that. I think
1: I remember him struggling with ferries as well. Didn't he buy or rent loads of ferries and?
0: and... No, he, he gave a thirty million pound contract to a ferry company that had no ferries, no buildings of operation, didn't even have a landline number. The, the operational conditions cost must have was been a general. Chinese
1: restaurant, wasn't it, or something like that? It was the rest. It
0: was
2: a two million pounds. <laughs> oh Lord.
0: With that um, cacophony of cock-ups, though, um, I do believe that brings this podcast to a natural end. Um, thank you very much to Alistair and Connor for coming on again and for doing the second attempt at trying to get the second episode of Waiting for the station to come out. If you want to follow Alistair, Connor, Rob and me on social media, you'll find our links in the description. Equally as well, if you want to follow more content from Red Rose Supporting, simply head to facebook.com slash Red Supporting or just hit us up on Twitter at Red Reporting. Um, Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. There we go.